All right, so we are speaking or talking about Samson, very familiar name to the church, very familiar name to culture. Uh, everyone is probably heard of this man named Samson. And so in the Bible, um, his story extends over four chapters. It is kind of the climax of Judges and really the, the real epitome or the depiction of what is going on in Israel um, through this one guy. So he has four chapters, and uh, across the four chapters, the story of Samson is kind of divided into two parts, or two acts. And with each of those acts, there's lots of little scenes for each one. And so the first act of Samson we basically have, have been through, and in that act we saw Samson's birth, we saw Samson's first failed marriage, and we saw Samson's kind of uh, revenge-fueled victory that we saw. And that extends from chapters 13, 14, and 15. And then we get into Act 2, which begins in uh, chapter 16. You'll see the end of 16 the end of 15 end the same way, so you can kind of see a clear division of two acts, uh, for lack of a better term. And so in Act 2, we have Samson's downfall and his eventual death that we'll see next week. And what we had ultimately was initially Samson heroically saving Israel from the bad guys, and now in chapter 16 we have Samson kind of becoming one of the bad guys uh, in many ways. And so Samson, though, is not a a simple character, though I think we have dealt with him quite simply in how historically we viewed Samson, dismissing him or minimizing him maybe. But he's he's actually a very complex character, a very complex person like any person would be. And what we see in, in Samson is a person who represents both faithfulness and unfaithfulness at the same time. Similar to maybe your experience. I don't know, I'm not always fully unfaithful. I'm not fully faithful. I'm kind of a mix in between. And that's what we see in Samson. So what we also see, though, if we step back for a second, because we can get lost in what Samson's doing and not seeing what God's doing. And that's really important as you read Judges, because it's God's story. It's God using all this broken people to accomplish his plan, not Samson doing heroic things, and we need to make a hero out of him. What we see in, in Samson is that he gives us a picture of what God's people are doing. Specifically, we see what Israel was supposed to be as a nation, as a set-apart nation. We see that in chapter 13 through 15. This is what Israel was supposed to be like. And then what we see in chapter 16 is what the nation of Israel was actually like and how they were supposed to be fighting the world around them, but what we see is they actually wanted to be like the world around them. And so Israel had basically failed in being faithful to God. What did that mean? Well, it was very specific. They were supposed to expunge all the people from the land. They didn't do that. They were supposed to not make friends with them or make contracts with them, not marry them, not worship their gods. Well, what they ended up doing was just the opposite. They basically did make friends with them, and they had lost the will to fight. And we see them now kind of grown accustomed to slavery grown really comfortable with it. They've been under slavery and oppression in their own land that God had given them for 40 years. And now we see, we saw at the end of last week, that they had come to fear and maybe even love, if those can be put together, the unholy world around them, and they no longer fear or love the holy God who made them and who saved them. So in chapters 13 through 15, as I said, you have Samson, this God's chosen from the womb deliverer 
who basically is the only person, the only one in all of Israel to stand up and fight against the Philistines. To stand up and go into the heart of the Philistine nation and fight. And he is driven by his brokenness. God uses all that is Samson, all the the junk that is Samson and the good parts that are Samson. So he's driven by this brokenness, but he's empowered by God's Spirit to basically pick a fight. Pick a fight with people who aren't fighting at all. And he wants to irritate the Philistines. And when this guy, the Savior, begins to fight, two things happen. Okay, One, Philistines end up dead. Okay, That's a good thing. Two, Israel ends up scared. They end up pretty uncomfortable. They like, like the Samson's doing, but then they don't like it because it's starting to impinge on the world that they're very comfortable with. So instead of standing up with God's Savior, instead of identifying with Samson and saying, he's our hero, let's rally around him, he clearly can fight and we can clearly win, instead of doing that, they begin to stand with the world. And what Israel does is they apologize. Apologize for their offense. Sorry that Samson kind of stepped over his bounds. He doesn't represent us. And they deliver their Savior over to the enemy. They were supposed to fight with Samson. They were supposed to fight like Samson. And what happens is you begin to see that they actually have more faith in the power of the world around them to save them. What do I mean by that? To give them hope, to give them meaning, to give them joy, than they do in the Savior who's already proven He can defeat them. So they're putting their faith in the world. And so by the end of chapter 15, we see Samson is victorious. He is sustained by God and by God's Spirit. But then chapter 16 begins, and we see that the Spirit of God is nowhere to be found. He isn't mentioned throughout the whole chapter. And we see that even God's best, Samson that is, are faithless and in need of a Savior. Because that's what Samson is. It's pointing us to Jesus. He's always going to point us to Jesus. So verse 1 says this as we begin chapter 16. The story of Samson continues. And it says, Samson went to Gaza. And there he saw a prostitute. And he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and two posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, this is one of the reasons why we go straight through the books of the Bible. Okay? You end up hitting stuff that's offensive. God's own people doing stuff that like, that's disturbing. And we have made a choice as a church. We're either going to skip those parts, pick and choose what we preach, or we're going to go, we're preaching judges, and all the terrifying, disturbing, broken things that we have to come in contact with, we're going to go through. And this is one of them. Now, Unlike the rest of Samson's story, as I said, the Spirit of God is not there. I've also wondered, though, if this part should be added to the end of chapter 15, because it seems to be pretty empowered to do something. But basically, chapter 16 begins the way chapter 14 began. Why did chapter 14 begin? Well, they both begin with him going to a city and seeing a woman. Saw a woman. Woman is not named. 
She's called a prostitute. Now, the first time he saw a woman was in the city of Timnah, and it could be argued that Samson was doing that because he was clever, strategic, he had a plan. He was trying to fulfill, if you will, his calling and service to the Lord and fight the Philistines. So he goes in, says, I'm going to marry this girl, gets inside, and is going to destroy them from the inside out. The second time, it can't be argued that way, and he is undoubtedly serving himself. And so the story begins and ends in the city called Gaza. We'll see Gaza in the beginning and the end, ultimately where he dies. And Gaza is one of the five great cities of these Philistine people that are reigning. There are five cities, according to Joshua 13, five lords over those cities. And the entire incident at Gaza is a little strangely placed, and I think it tells us one of two things. One is Samson judged or ruled or reigned for 20 years, but we only get these little highlights of different things he did. But in the beginning of Judges 16, I wonder if this is a picture of what those 20 years were like. Where for 20 years, Samson went into cities like this, maybe he saw prostitutes, maybe he didn't, but he went in and he would do these little battles that wouldn't devastate the entire nation, but would basically cause a lot of irritation, a lot of problems. You rip off the gates of a city, that city is now vulnerable to an enemy, so it's kind of a big deal. It's not just like, oh, he put a hole in the wall. It's a major issue. That's a possibility. The other possibility is that this Gaza thing just kind of happens, and it helps the story move along to say, well, this is why the Gazites or the Philistines are so motivated to get him. Because they basically chase him down, fall him down, they're spying on him, and they want to figure out how can we get him because he's embarrassing us so much, or at least he just embarrassed us in his major way at one of our main cities. Gaza would be like you know, New York, Seattle, San Francisco, these major cities that are all over. Now, either way, what we see is this guy who's supposed to be you know, basically a Christian, a guy who's supposed to love Jesus, a guy who's supposed to be devoted to Yahweh, he is not acting like it in any way, and he is proving as time goes on a little more reckless, a little more immoral, and a little more self-motivated every minute. And for all the strength that Samson has, for all the giftings that Samson has, for all the great things that Samson has done, he's got one major weakness. Women. Women. And that's not a commentary on women. That's a commentary on Samson, right? Everyone has a weakness. And what I mean by that, yes, we all struggle with lust and envy and greed, but there's usually one that kind of takes that prominent position in your idolic trophy room, right? That trophy room that's full of all your idols that you love more than Jesus at times. And there's one that has that little concave area where the lights shine down on it perfectly. When you turn the lights on, it's like, oh, right? For Samson, that's lust. For you, it might be something else. We all struggle with it, really, but some people struggle with greed more than they do lust and vice versa. The reality is Samson, his greatest weakness is his sexual appetite. And lust has come to govern him so much so it threatens his devotion. That's the thing that ultimately is going to get him. That's the thing where he is most vulnerable. And so it seems as if Samson, for some reason wrongly believes that he can devote himself to God and the world at the same time. What do I mean? Well, what you see throughout the story of Samson is that he will identify with God when he needs to. And then he will identify with the world when he wants to. 
He practices something that I think we're all guilty of. It's called selective lordship. I kind of like selective hearing, right? I'll choose the things I want to hear. Oh, I didn't hear that, honey. No, I, gosh, I don't know, right? We selectively block it out. We do the same thing with selective lordship. We look at our life, all the pieces of our life, relationships, money, job, all these things. We go, well, I'll give the Lord those things, but these are mine. And sometimes we swap those things around, but there's always a, a piece of it that we go, well, this is mine, or even in the moment, we act as if the Lord is not the Lord over that. And so Samson, you'll see that he will submit to God those things in his life that are convenient and easy and comfortable. Things that don't cost him much. But he'll befriend the world in its ways when it suits his desires, right? He'll commit what amounts to spiritual adultery when he cheats on God because he feels a little frisky. Spiritually speaking. And literally. What we see in James 4 is, a, I think, a very, for those, of, for those of us here, honestly, for those of you who claim to be Christians, James 4.4 4 should terrify you. Especially if you believe that you can kind of play that game of selected lordship, like, oh, I'm just going to keep one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. James 4.4 4 tells you this. It says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an enemy of God. That sounds like the wrong team to be on, right? We've got to be really careful because people go, well, I want to be friendly with I'm not talking about being friendly. The Bible clearly says there's a distinction and a problem with having friendship with the world, and that's what we see Samson ultimately do. He's living two lives. He is part-time devoted. Samson does kind of these spirit-filled, momentary acts of greatness, right? Like, wow, look what God did. And then he has an everyday lifestyle full of just sinful compromise, 20 years of it. I mean, how many of us have lived like that? We have our, our boxes checked of, I remember when I wrote that big check to that kid going on the mission. Yeah, that's where I gave to God. And that kind of overshadows the next five years of having to do anything. Right? I remember when I went on the mission trip. I really remember when I stopped and gave a hoagie sandwich to that homeless guy. That was so God-honoring. You know, you, you kind of play that game with yourself. With these momentary acts of, I remember when I did these things. Meanwhile, you have a Monday through Friday lack of devotion. Where you're really not sure who is the Lord of anything. So we have Samson here who's spending the night, I'm guessing it's not the first time he's done this, with a girl from Gaza. The Philistine men set an ambush for him, right? They've followed him enough to know what's going to happen. Oh, he's going to spend the night here dipping in the morning. We'll wait till the morning. And then we'll get him. But Samson gets up at midnight, thwarts their plans, and rips the gate off the front of the city. Now, this isn't like your little gate little picket fence gate on the front of your yard, right? This is like probably a 12-foot by 6-foot, you know, super thick thing with poles and bars. And he, like, then he doesn't just go, yeah, see you later. He's like, puts it on his back, and he goes in. Hebron is 40 miles away, uphill, okay, 2,000 feet of elevation gain. He's like, right, and he throws it on one of the hills, probably didn't get all the way to the city, and where's Hebron? Hebron is in the heart of Judah. 
what's Judah? Judah is the tribe that gave him up to the Philistines, right? So he's like making a statement with the Philistines and making a statement with Judah, which may be somewhat selfishly motivated. He's a little ticked, but he makes a large statement and shows that he's very strong. But then, verse 4, after this, the story continues. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him to see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we'll each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Okay. So, do you have that map? Let me uh, explain what this kind of looks like. So, the Valley of Sorek is about 13 miles west of Jerusalem. So, just to the left of it a little bit. Ashkelon is the first city he went to on the coast over there, where he got the 30 clothes by killing guys, basically. And just north of that, where that word Canaan is, is where Gaza is. So, Hebron's kind of in between there. So, he's traveling all over there, and now he's near Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is like in the heart of Judah. Okay, this isn't even close to Philistine country in the, in the true sense of the word, though Philistines are really oppressing all of it. And so he is in the land of Judah, and he falls for a woman named Delilah, who I'm sure everyone has heard of. Now, Delilah's name means night. And we know the night is the setting of the sun, and whose name means sun but Samson, right? The little sun. So she is pretty much going to pull the shades down on Samson. Now, because of where she's located, there's some question as to whether she's actually Philistine or Israelite. Now, there are four women in the story of Samson. The first was his mom. You never learn her name. The second is his first wife. You never learn her name. The third is the prostitute. You never learn her name. The fourth is Delilah, and you get her name. Why? I'm not sure. But she ends up being incredibly important in the downfall of Samson. And I personally think she's probably an Israelite. Not only because of the location, but how much he actually trusts her. Now, I might be wrong, but regardless, she has responsibility as an Israelite or not, doesn't matter, to honor God. And we see that Delilah has her own individual weakness. And it's a weakness that threatens her chances for devotion as well. But regardless, Samson loves her. He loves her more than, you know, he didn't love, if you will, the first wife. He didn't love the prostitute. But for this woman, he loves her. Something about her is captivating to him. And knowing this, the lords of the Philistines, because there's five of them, have been watching. They've got spies everywhere. They go to her and they say, look, we'll give you 1,100 shekels of silver each if you will seduce him and find out his secret. And that's why I believe that Samson isn't this huge muscular guy, right? He's not like, you know, he can't put his arms together type of guy because people are like, well, he's strong because he's got big muscles. No, I think he is a pretty normal looking guy who can rip gates off and catch foxes and do, you know, amazing things. And they want to know what's his secret. There's something. He's, he's some secret, some magical thing here. So they exploit, in order to get that secret, Delilah's greatest weakness. So what's that? Greed. I don't know how many shekels you guys have spent lately, right? I don't remember the last time I had a shekel in my pocket. 
but a shekel is a piece of silver, and she's offered basically 5,500 shekels, okay, because five lords, 1,100, do the math, I think that's 5,500, right, so I'm not very good at it, but, you know, I know some math. So, that is, 5,500 shekels is 550 times the annual wage for an Israelite at that time. A lot of money. What's that today? Well, let's just assume an average yearly salary of 25000 For some of you, like, yeah. For some of you, no. Right? I, whatever. 25000 So if the annual wage would be 25000 today, that would be $15 million that she's offered. $15 million. Like, it's not like, here, here's some coins. Why don't you uh, take them down? It's like, here is a complete lifestyle change everyone's good. you got serious cash. And so, it's not like she says, no, I love him, right? She's like, boom, next verse. Oh, Samson, right? She's on board. She is like, money is where it's at. Sounds good. She buys in 100%. And she is trying to bring him down. She wants to ultimately kill him. Like they say, we're going to humble him. But she knows what they're going to do. And Samson, he knows. And to him, it's just a game. See, I think sometimes the attacks of the enemy, honestly, are pretty obvious. And almost like foolish. And we just play with them. We think, like, oh, it's just a game. It's not a game. The Bible describes your enemy as a lion wanting to eat you. An enemy who's firing missiles at you. You have an enemy that wants to kill you, wants to kill your relationship with your God, relationship with your wife or your husband, your relationship with your, what, hates you. And Samson's just kind of like, yeah, you know, no big deal. Delilah wants to kill him. Philistines want to kill him, and he plays. And here's how the game goes. Verse 6, and I'll read it all the way to 14. So Delilah said to Samson, right, the next verse, not even like she thought about it for a minute, right? Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you, maybe. So Samson said to her, well, now I, can, I, I, just, I have to picture this, okay? I have to picture because he's, she's supposed to seduce him, right? So it's not like she's just standing there, you know, at the kitchen or whatever and going, so how can they subdue you? He's like, she's like, have a grape, right? She's probably dressing in something nice. She's like, so, he's like, oh, I'll tell you, baby, how they can subdue me, right? He's, you got to understand, he is, she is manipulating him. And so, Samson says to her, well, give me another grape. If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, when you think bowstrings, you are thinking like bowstrings? Yes, bow, like, that's it. It's like, it's like string. Okay, this is the guy who just ripped off the gate of a city. Okay, tie some string around my fingers and I'll be fine, right? I mean, no. So you got to understand, there's something going on here. Again, what is happening as opposed to like what's actually happening. So, it says, the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried. And not being dried made them even weaker. Okay, so they're like weak as can be. And she bound him with them. 
And I want how that happen, right? Here, I have a goblet. Oh, I just want to tie this on. Don't worry. Right? Now, how does she sneak? So he, he's not like being tricked. He's, yeah, go ahead. Do, do, do. Feed me another grape. So now she had men lying in ambush in her inner chamber. So she's got like a little army in some little room somewhere. She's waiting for them to pounce. She's going to give them the signal. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Right? She ties him up. It's like, oh, here come the Philistines. They're not really there, but she's just trying to see, is he really going to be able to break out of this? And what does he do? He snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. And so the secret of strength was not known. So then she starts turning it up, right? Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and you have told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, All right, well, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then they shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him, which is kind of funny because he was already bound once with ropes by Judah to be given to the Philistines. And what happened to them? They burned off. I guess they forget that. So he came out, yeah, new ropes, just bring those. But he burned, okay, whatever. And they bring them. Those must have been old ones, right? So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush went in an inner chamber, but he snapped the robes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said, right, if you weave the seven locks of my head. So he imagine he's got like dreadlocks, right? Like seven big things coming off here. Okay? Because he's been growing his hair since he was like, you know, zero. So he's got a lot of hair. He said, tell me, well, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I should become weak and be like any other man. Pretty creative. Right? So basically, there's two kinds of loom, an upstanding one and one on the ground. So she's going to lay him down and then weave his hair into, like, the loom, like a big hair blanket that he's tied down to, like Gulliver, right? He's, like, strapped down. So that's the picture, right? It's like, how do you get a guy, oh, really? How's that? Why did you lay down and show me? What do you mean? (laughs) I mean, he, like, knows what's going on. He's not such a heavy sleeper that, like, he doesn't actually, you know, catch that. Maybe he is because he gets his hair cut off later. But... They lie him down, and she took seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin. Ow, right? Pins him down. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and pulled away from the pin and loom in the web. So he busts out of it. It's like, da-da-da, and nothing. So you have this, this woman, Delilah, who is devoted to the Philistines' lords. She is devoted to getting riches, and she's just asking him, please tell me, tell me, tell me, and gives these three magical ways to bind him. You go, why do you give such stupid ways to bind him? Well, it's important to understand not just how we read Judges, but how the Israelites would have read this. Okay, how would they have read this story? Well, the Philistines, as were many of the cultures, that pagan cultures of time, full of magic. They believed in magic. They believed in the, the, the weird little you know, fate and luck and those little weird things that they could do. And so... They believed that Sam of his strength had to be something strange. And therefore, there had to be a magical solution to get rid of it. So to them, saying, take these like strings or weave his head into a blanket, is like, oh, of course. That's it, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Superman. Like, how you defeat him? Not with a nuclear bomb, with this green rock from a distant planet. 
course, that's got to be it, right? It's always like something weird that is going to kill him. So, you know, they were all for it. But obviously, three different times, Samson tells Delilah, and she ultimately does the three things, and three different times, he breaks out of it. And, you know, I really think he's a smart guy. I mean, he has been proven at this point, he's told riddles, he's been super strong, he caught 300 foxes. You think about that? I don't even see a fox. And I don't even catch 300 of them and then tie their tails together and put a torch in there. I don't even know how that works, right? But you go, this guy has got it together. But yet, he seems kind of dense at this point. He's like telling her stuff. Next thing you know, he's laying in a weave. You're not thinking like, man, maybe she's like not really trying to help me. Like he's just playing. He's just playing this game. But essentially what you see is this, right? Here, here is where the punch comes. You see that Israel had to see something. And they would laugh at this. We're like, oh yeah, you're, like, you're going to tie Samson down with his hair. Oh, bowstrings, that's going to do it. What they would see is this. That ultimately their oppression, they've been oppressed, they've been in slavery, had nothing to do with their weakness or the strength of the Philistines. Had nothing to do with it. That Samson proves that their men are weak, their gods are weak, and their magic is meaningless and powerless. Israel might have been even scared about that. But they see that it's all weak. And Israel is not enslaved because the world around them is too powerful. That's not the reason they're oppressed. That's not the reason why the Philistines are reigning right now. They are oppressed and weak and enslaved because they have been faithless. They have been disobedient. In other words, the problem is not an external one. Sin is not, oh, the big bad world out there might kill me. There's a problem in our hearts that goes after the sin in that world. We have an internal problem problem. We have faithless hearts. And that faithfulness rises up from within us and we need a Savior who can deal with us from the inside out. And tragically, what we see is through the picture of Samson, what happens to someone when their devotion goes from creator to creation. Just as Israel had done. Remember, Samson's this picture of Israel. Now we're going to see the, faith, the pure faithfulness And how did Israel actually get to that point where they were faithless? Like, what did they do to become so faithless? You will see. Verse 15, through the end here, Delilah turns on the charm. And you can just hear her, right? The manipulative vixen of her. She's going off like, oh, Samson, you don't love me. You're not intimate. I want real relationship, Samson. You need to be vulnerable. That's what a real man does. He touches his feelings. You're hiding from Blah, 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 right? He falls for it. She said to him, how can you say I love you? You're telling me When your heart's not with me, you have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. Feed yourself grapes, right? And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day after day after day, I mean, you don't love me. No, yeah, yeah, I do, baby. No, you don't love me. No, I, I do, baby. No, you don't love me. And then he breaks. 
she urged him, and his soul was vexed to death. So he's not just irritated, right? He's not just like, well, yeah, no, he's not irritated. He actually begins to emotionally connect. And when she pressed him hard, oh, sorry, and he told her all his heart, verse 17, I think, is the most important verse in the whole section. He told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that she had told her, that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Ah, I finally have his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. So the Bible says not that, uh uh-oh, Samson gave up his secret. The Bible says that he gave her his heart. Samson gives him the temptation, but it's not a temptation toward like bad behavior as much as it's a temptation to devote himself to someone who is not God. His words are more than a slip of the tongue. They're a willful entrusting, right? He entrusts his identity to this woman who's proven that she doesn't love the Lord and she can't be trusted. And sadly, as he confesses and tells her, like, well, here is how I can be subdued, we see that Samson has always known that he was a Nazarite. What's a Nazarite? You can read it in number six if you want. But it's someone who is devoted to the Lord. See, Samson has always known who he was. He has always known that he was supposed to live as one who was devoted to the Lord. And he willfully chose not to. And why Samson does this, why does he fall for this silly thing, and why did he tell her, we don't really know exactly But we are sure of what he did. He gave up that which distinguished him from the world. The thing, the identifying mark that set him apart in devotion to God. And that's exactly what Israel had done, right? They were were God's people. God had saved this people for himself. He had loved these people by grace. He had chosen them out of all the peoples of the world, not because they were anything better. He said, I just chose to love you. He'd redeemed them from slavery to be worshipers, and he had called them to proclaim his name and to bless the world in doing so. And they had been told, you are to fight the Canaanites. You are not to live like the Canaanites. You are not to make friends with the Canaanites. And what did Israel do? They decided to be friends with the Canaanites, which led them to being ruled by the Canaanites, which led them to being like the Canaanites. See, God's people have been entrusted. Think about this, church. God's people have been entrusted with the responsibility to represent God in a world that hated them. And yet they ended up cutting off that which distinguished them as the devoted people. The very marks of devotion, if you will. Now, to be sure... Samson's strength did not come from his hair, okay? 
It came from God. And I say that because there's sometimes some confusion about that. The Nazarite vow that, that was made for him and that he ultimately made by help of his parents, it didn't promise strength or superpowers. The Nazarite vow was a commitment to be set apart, devoted to God, His way, for His purposes. And the cutting off of the hair was how the individual ended the devotion. They were supposed to cut their hair off, and that would end their devoted time period. And there was other ceremonies attached to that. So there's no magical tie between His strength and His hair, but there is, without doubt, a spiritual connection that God gives strength to those who are devoted to Him. Samson's hair was a, a sign of devotion, and now his devotion is done, or he's done being devoted, I guess you could say. And by giving his heart over to this Philistine or woman, whatever, he ultimately cut off his mark of devotion, the very thing that gave him strength. And as I began to like, think about, okay, let's Israel understand that Samson like, what has the church done? What have Christians done? And I, I would argue that the church has also become very weak. And they become very weak because we've cut off the very marks that have set us apart. The things of devotion that God has given us. What do I mean? Well, the church, according to the Bible, God's people are supposed to be God's representatives in the world. In fact, the Bible calls them many things. It says the the gathering, the church, the assembly of God, is the manifestation of God's wisdom. It's where you see God's wisdom played out in how we relate to one another. The church is called the pillar of truth, like the thing that holds up the truth. The church is called the beautiful bride of the Lord. The church is called a city on a hill. The church is called a royal priesthood. The church is called a holy nation among other nations. But sometimes it seems, and I might be wrong, but sometimes it seems that the things that set us apart, the things that are supposed to set the church apart as a devoted people are the very things that the church works very hard to show the world that we're not about. To get rid of. As if embarrassed. It's as if you want to convince the world that, oh, we're just like them. And in doing so, what happens is we start to give up the very marks of devotion that make us strong. We want to be liked, not disliked. We want to be loved, not hated, popular, not marginalized. And as a result, we end up failing to identify with Jesus and failing ultimately to do so shamelessly and publicly. We fail for the temptation, or fall for the temptation to cut off anything that might be offensive. We only speak the soft words, right? The grace words. We don't avoid, or we try to avoid bad words like obey and law. Those are bad. We give up the authority of God's Word as the authority. We blur the lines that Scripture clearly draws. 
We apologize for difficult doctrines. We abandon traditions that, you know, might be misunderstood for fear of not being liked. And we end up devoting ourselves more to the lords, if you will, of the world than the Lord of the universe. And in the end, we cut off the very things that God said, these are the things that will set my people apart. These will be the very strength that you have. Not because they're magical, but because they mark genuine devotion of I love Jesus more than I love the world. And what happens when you do that? What happens when an individual or a church turns from devotion to the Creator to devotion to creation, which is really what's happening here? This is what happens in verse 21. We'll hit 22 next week, because I think it should be part of the next chapter. It says, The Philistines seized him, Samson, and gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Here's what happens when you devote yourself to creation as opposed to the Creator. You are bound, you are blind, and you are in bondage. See, believing he could see, Samson did what was right in his own eyes, just like Israel. Right? That's the theme of Judges. Israel's done right in their own eyes. What we see in Samson, what is pictured, is that Samson physically becomes what he and Israel already were spiritually, blind. And not only that, they show that they're actually enslaved. And so he's pushing a mill to grind grain of which the God, which we'll see in the next chapter, Dagon of the Gazites, is the God of grain. So he has been forced now to serve the false God blindly. And so, to be sure, as we close, I don't want us to leave here going, oh, we're supposed to abandon the world and hide away in our Christian compound and pray for Jesus to return and save us from all the evil. That's not actually what we're called to do. Jesus actually sent us, called us, to go into the world, but to do so devoted to the truth. John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples on the night he's arrested and is going to die. He says, verse 13, speaking to God, Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word as disciples and us. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are sent into the world, but we are sent to shamelessly and publicly identify with the Word of God in the world. Not apologize for it. Yes, speak it gently, but speak it clearly and speak it boldly. And in order to do this, you have to see the truth clearly. And by grace, you have to recognize for those who are not in Christ that you are utterly lost. There was a gentleman, he got baptized the first service. He walked into our church last week on Wednesday, I believe it was. Didn't think I was a pastor because I was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. He said, I need to talk to a pastor. I said, I am. He's like, are you sure? I said, yeah, I think so. 
He came in and he basically, Jesus had grabbed him by the back of the collar after 40 plus years and he didn't know what was going on. He said, I just feel broken. I feel like I've been selfish. I feel like, yeah, it sounds like Jesus. He says, I feel like I can't see anything. I said, yeah, that's how you've lived 42 years of your life. Walking around a dark room pretending like you could see stuff. Stumbling around, right? Oh, ow, ooh, oh, I knew that was there. And keep moving. And you really can't see. And then suddenly Jesus shows up. And boom, the lights come on. And you're like, oh my gosh, look at all the stuff that could hurt me. That I didn't even know was there. Or I pretended that it wasn't. That's what happened to him. I basically told him the story of Damascus Road when Paul, a guy who was killing Christians, was going on his road to Damascus. And Jesus showed up and knocked him off his horse and he couldn't see for a little bit. And then next thing you know, his eyes became clear when he said, it's Jesus who has saved you. And a brother came and prayed for him. And I prayed for him and he accepted Christ and we baptized him this morning. It was awesome. Awesome. But the light of Jesus has to come into someone's life in order to see that, look, you've been lost, man. You've been walking around. You've been following out this world. You even know that it was out to kill you. Without Christ, you will continue to do what you think is right, and I'm telling you, it was wrong. It will lead you to death. But once you have believed the promises of Jesus, for those of you who have claimed faith in Jesus, for those of you who confess, I know Jesus died for my sins. I know He rose from the dead on the third day. I trust Him as not just my Savior, but my Lord. That's not to be a private proclamation. You are to identify and proclaim and represent Jesus in the middle of a world that Jesus says hates you, but pretends to love you, like Delilah. See, pure devotion is much more than identifying to Jesus when it's convenient and when it's comfortable, or just upholding the parts of the Word of God that people like to hear. It is unashamedly identifying with Jesus and the truth of his word, with your friends, with your family, with the world, with the community, whoever, when it is inconvenient, when it is uncomfortable, and when it's unpopular. The mark of our devotion to Jesus is not measured by how long your hair is, praise God, or how much wine you don't drink, like some kind of Nazarite. It's measured by how deep the gospel goes into our hearts. It's measured by, and our strength is found in the fact that we trust in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. So don't give the marks of devotion up to the world because you feel like they're going to be offended by it. Or you're going to be unpopular because of it. What kind of marks? Marks like confession. I admit that I'm a sinner. Marks like repentance. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to pursue God, though I don't know exactly how that works. I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm going to gather with the church. But I will close with a verse out of 1 John right before we see two men publicly identify with Jesus in a way that he commanded us to, which was baptism. In 1 John, which is a very convicting book, so uh, I hesitate for you to encourage you to read it, but if you want to know if you're a Christian, go to read 1 John. That will blow your mind. But what it talks about, so there's no confusion about how we're to interact with the world, and talks about loving the world, how to overcome the world. I will tell you this, it's not based off what you do. It's 
based off what you believe. So I'll close with this verse and then I'll pray. 1 John 5 says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever who has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Not our perfect way of doing things, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith in Jesus is what helps us to overcome the world.